Hey, it's Leah. Before we start this episode, I just wanted to tell you about this other show called Stuff the British Stole. It's from CBC Podcast and Australia Radio National, and it's got all the story elements I love. It's got colonial theft. It's got museums denying that theft. It's got intrigue. It's got jokes by Australians. Join host Mark Fresnel as he picks one artifact and takes you on the wild, evocative, sometimes funny, and often tragic adventure of how it got to where it is today. Check it out on the same thing that you're listening to this on or on CBC Listen. This is a CBC Podcast. Just a warning, this episode contains strong language and content, because history does sometimes. Oh, I'm on the trail. I'm over hill and dale, and I ride, 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 as only I can. But oh, the shame, everybody knows my name. I'm the Mountie who never got his man. There's a killer at large. The bugle sounds the charge to your saddles, men, and give a brave account. But what remorse, for I can't get on my horse. I'm a Mountie who cannot even mount. By 1995, the respectable Mountie was being disrespected. You could find the icon everywhere, on underwear, ashtrays, and even in porn. The Royal Mounted Police had enough and decided to take control over their most valuable asset, their image. When they signed the licensing agreement for Disney to control and market the Mountie, Disney had agreed to it in part because the Mountie fit in with their brand. Shared family values and a wholesome, positive image would solidify the partnership, made official in June of 1995. This was the same time Indigenous people were traveling to Gustafin Lake in BC to prepare for a Sundance. Although it was unceded Sequetmic territory, the section of land they had gathered on near Hundred Mile House was disputed. A month later, in an effort to force the small group of Sequetmic land defenders, the RCMP deployed 400 tactical assault team members, five helicopters, two surveillance planes, and nine armored personnel carriers. When it was all over, it would go on record as the largest paramilitary operation in BC's history, all courtesy of the new Disney-certified Mountie. So that intro music was from the film Rosemary. I mentioned it in part one, and it was performed by Burt Lahr, who is most recognizable as the cowardly lion in The Wizard of Oz, playing a Mountie now. The other music, I remember that. That's from The Wonderful World of Disney. It was a dedicated Disney movie or cartoon that would air every Sunday. And, you know, so we continue to take precious things (laughs) from people's childhood memories and just... (laughs) light them on fire and burn them till they were unrecognizable. Well, You're welcome. Sorry, um, everyone. I I anyway. I yeah, take this issue is with that. I don't think that we are doing that. I think it's just what happened. It's it's this is history, and here is history. This is the Secret Life of Canada <laughs> podcast. About. It's about the country you know and the stories you don't, y'all. Here's part two. So when we left off, we were talking about the fact that the Northwest Mounted Police were in charge of enforcing a ban against the Sundance, courtesy of the Indian Act, which came into law in 1885. Yep, that's right. 
And so based on what happened at Gustafen Lake 110 years later, the police were still breaking up sun dances and trying to kick indigenous people off their land. E- well, technically it was the RCMP, not the Northwest Mounted Police, but... Right. Yeah. And welcome to part two of our episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so before we start, though, we should do a recap. Sure. In part one, we covered the very beginnings of Canada's policing efforts, the first force, the Dominion Police, and then the Northwest Mounted Police, who were formed specifically to control the lawless American frontier element, as well as to represent the government's interest in the colonial project of clearing the West of Indigenous people to make way for the railroad and settlers. You can tell how I feel about that. That's the short version of it, uh, but you really should go back and listen to part one to get all the details. Yeah, it's true. Check it out if you haven't yet, because today in part two, we're going to try and find out how the Northwest Mounted Police became the RCMP, and then why specific provinces and cities did not want the RCMP and instead set up their own police services. And then we'll talk about how that's worked out. Saskatoon Police, I'm looking at you. On top of that, we'll use history to find out why, like numerous Indigenous nations, many Black Canadians also have an inherent distrust of the police. Okay, ready? Yeah, I'm like, I think I know the answer. Um, Yeah, no, I'm ready. So how did the Northwest Mounted Police become the RCMP? Okay, well, a lot of it has to do with Winnipeg. Okay, how so? So in 1904, the government of Canada thought they had done a really good job with securing the West, which we now know meant displacing Indigenous people to make settlement easier. In recognition of their service to the Empire of Britain, the name Royal was added and they became the Royal Northwest Mounted Police. So Western Canada had the RNWMP, which is what I'm going to call them uh, from now on, and Eastern Canada still had had the Dominion police force. Oh, so they were still around. Because, yeah, I remember you mentioned that they were created to tamp down on Irish revolutionaries. And so they were more of a federal police force, right? Yeah, so the Dominion police were put in charge of enforcing federal acts, and they were also in the spy game. They were always on the lookout for upset Irish people and enemies of the state. That just sounds so funny. (laughs) (laughs) Upset Irish people. Well, Well, they were. They were. Uh, Yes. It makes it, like, they could be upset about anything, right? Right. (laughs) General, any Irish person who's like, why has the... (laughs) Bus fare increased, we're yeah, cracking like, down. Why is Colm O'Connell so angry? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> like, so these two police forces had very different roles. To make it a bit easier, think of the Dominion Police as Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible, okay? And the Royal Northwest Mounted Police were like Mariska Hartigay in Law & Order. So the Law & Order guys, the Mounties, were about the day-to-day crime solving. And, you know, the Dominion Police Mission Impossible guys were all about diffusing bombs, and decoding secret messages. So, all of a sudden, it's 1914, and a huge world-altering event was happening. So, World War I, which lasted from 1914 to 18, and was fought between major European countries, and we went to war, not we, but the royal we, as in Canada, went to war because Canada was a part of the British Empire. That's right. And that meant things got really busy for the Mission Impossible Dominion Police Force when conscription became law. So conscription meant that if you were a certain age and health, you had to fight in the war. You didn't have a choice. But a lot of people, especially in parts of Quebec, protested and rebelled against conscription. 
Why Quebecers specifically? You know, many people in Quebec objected to the war because, one, the Canadian government under Prime Minister Robert Borden had promised that they wouldn't enact conscription. It was actually an election promise that they went back on. And then number two, Quebecers didn't want to fight for the British crown. You know, they aligned themselves with... France or just right. being French and not being English, right? Yeah, that makes sense. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Right. So nevertheless, the Dominion police were put in charge of arresting people who were deemed as anti-conscriptionists. They were busy because 3,895 people were arrested in 1917 and early 1918. Out of the 404,000 men eligible for conscription, 380,000 applied for an exemption so they wouldn't have to go. Which is surprising to me. I didn't know that many people objected to conscription during World War One, because it's always framed as like everyone went and did and they went willingly and, mm-hmm. you know, and did it as a sense of duty. And I think, you know, many did, but it just proves that it's a very, you know, real like human fear to face war. Like, yeah, Yeah. people were scared and some did not agree. And if I remember from our first episode ever, uh, the episode on Banff, this was a time when a lot of immigrants were seen as enemy aliens. So the police were also tracking them as well as conscientious objectors, right? So people who disagreed with whore. There was a lot of suspicion and many of these quote-unquote enemy aliens were put into internment camps. Yeah, salute to our very first episode. You can check it out in our other feed with the yellow logo. It's called The Secret Life of Banff. But yeah, anyway, the Dominion police were surveilling people they thought were unionists, socialists, communists. They were also rounding up black market profiteers. So the 2020 equivalent is like the people who filled entire storage lockers Mm, with toilet paper and hand sanitizer and then just tried to resell them at a profit. That's bad (laughs) karma. That's bad karma. That is very bad karma. But okay, so the police were very busy at this time. So busy. And so you know what? They needed backup. So the Dominion police called on the Northwest Mounted Police for help. So the government started asking the law and order guys to start taking on some of the stuff the Mission Impossible guys were doing so they would have more people on the job doing spy work and like repelling from the ceiling and getting secret codes and that sort of thing. Yeah. So Mariska uh, was brought in to help out Tom Cruise and Ving Rhames in Mission Impossible. I can't believe I forgot about Ving. He's the only other actor to appear in all of them. So he's very important. (laughs) But yes, that's basically what was happening. Okay, so Canada wanted both forces to get in the spy game. Yeah, they wanted all the police forces to be able to have the technology to make realistic face masks from computers in their briefcases. Mm -hmm. Mission Impossible 3, baby, it's the best one. Philip Seymour Hoffman plays Tom Cruise wearing a face mask that looks like Philip Seymour Hoffman. It's amazing. (laughs) It's one of my most favorite movies. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. I can tell. I know what you've been up to. Um, and it reminds me of one of my favorite movies, Face Off. Oh, my gosh. That is such a good bad I know movie. it is. It it's really a terrible is. movie, but also good. And that brings me to the Winnipeg general strike, which really scared the government of Canada. Okay, and why was that? Because workers were upset. I mean, when people came back from fighting and the war ended, they expected that life was going to get a bit better. But actually, factories started closing and unemployment was high. 
It must have been a wild and stressful time because let's not forget that on top of all of this, a pandemic had begun in 1918. So you have the Spanish flu, a pandemic, an ideological and political divide over the war, which pitted people against each other, uh, a huge distrust of the government, and an economic downturn in which a huge percentage of the population was unemployed. And it's like, wow, 2020, you're really ripping off 1918 big time. It's literally history repeating. And, you know, it was a weird time, but these workers, they really wanted better wages. They wanted improvement on terrible and sometimes dangerous working conditions and a better collective bargaining apparatus. You know, they wanted to be able to bring something to the table and negotiate. The Winnipeg Labor Council organized, and in May 1919, 30,000 people in Winnipeg walked off the job and the city came to a standstill. By the way, that's about half the working population of Winnipeg at this time. So it was huge. The police set up four new militia units to combat the workers. Uh, They were equipped with machine guns and they were instructed to break the strike and arrested 10 of the organizers. In response, strikers had a silent march to protest. When some in the crowd started to vandalize stores, the police started to shoot into the crowd of unarmed protesters as they charged the crowd on horseback. In a day now known as Bloody Saturday, 30 people were injured and two were killed. In the aftermath, it was obvious that there was a two-tiered system in Canada, one for the rich and powerful and one for the working class. It would lead to a strained relationship between organized labor and the police. For the government, the strike had illustrated the need for Canada to have a central force that could not only manage indigenous populations for the federal government, but also immigrants, unions, workers, and anyone with a political affiliation that was deemed as being harmful to Canada. A few months later, they merged forces. The Dominion Police and the Royal Northwest Mounted Police would now be a unified national police militarized force called the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or the RCMP. The Mounties. 5,400 men who maintain the law superbly well in Canada. A police force that has gained the admiration and respect of the world. Though many of the stories of the brave and fearless Mountie are just stories, he's still a special kind of man, an exceptional kind of policeman, a symbol to all the world of justice and principle, courage and courtesy. What makes a Mountie? The process begins with the kind of men selected. Okay, so Canada now has a national police force called the RCMP. So yeah, as we've discussed, settlers were coming into the West, and some of those settlers were black migrants from the southern U.S. Even though 5,000 out of the 3 million settlers who came onto this land during those years were black, Canada implemented a ban on most black migration. Right. The government used the excuse that it was too cold for black people to survive here, and so often black immigrants were denied entry. The ones who made it started to become over-policed. While Indigenous people living on reserves could not leave unless they got permission, Black populations at this time were also monitored. There were places throughout Canada that had sundown laws, which meant that if you were Black, you had to be inside or out of town limits by a certain time or face getting arrested by the police. For instance, Black people were not allowed to be in Wallaceburg, Ontario after dark. In the 1940s, there are accounts like those of June Robbins, a Black woman 
woman who would have to travel 34 miles a day between Chatham and Wallaceburg to comply with the law. And, you know, this kind of policing where monitoring or being stopped by police randomly and for no crime carried on. You can see that in the practice of carding today, which entails police randomly stopping people to check and collect their personal information. You know, we know in the present day in Toronto, for instance, Black people are carded more than any other racial group. And again, this is a case of being stopped for no reason, no crime. But as history shows, Black people's encounters with the police were going on well before this time. For instance, there's the story of a young black boy named Sylvanus Demarest, who in 1858 had to be rescued by the black community in Chatham, Ontario, when they found out a white man kidnapped him and put him onto a train heading to Detroit. At this time, slavery had ended in Canada but was still legal in the U.S., and this white man claimed he owned Sylvanus. In Chatham at this time, half of the citizens in the town were black. So under the leadership of a man named Isaac Shad, who was the brother of the anti-slavery activist Marianne Shad, he and a crowd of black townspeople stormed the train that the kidnapper had put Sylvanus on in an effort to save him. The people knew that they would have to take control over the situation because law enforcement was not going to help save Sylvanus. And this was because of America's Fugitive Slave Act that said enslaved black people who ran and ended up in free states had to be found and returned to their quote-unquote owners. It would put black people's lives in danger, whether they were considered free or not, and even for some of those who had made it to Canada. And so that is why the black community had to take their safety into their own hands. Isaac Shad and the other people managed to rescue the boy in time. That's right. They got on the train and got Sylvanus out and reunited with his mother. It was a huge event that became known as the Damaris Rescue. Amelia Harris, a white woman from the prominent Eldon family in London, Ontario, wrote this. A great outrage has been committed on the Great Western at Chatham. A southern gentleman was passing through with a slave boy of 10 years old. Some Negro made the discovery here and telegraphed to the colored people in Chatham, who assembled a mob of 300. And when the train stopped at the station, they took the boy forcibly from his master, although the child cried and did not wish to go. It will turn the American travel from Canada. Well, glad to see Amelia had her priorities straight. But Canada actually agreed with her, and instead of arresting the men, the police arrested the people who had saved him instead, Isaac Shad and six other black folk. They were found guilty of rioting, given heavy fines, which they were unable to pay, and sent to jail. So this is kind of what we saw in part one with the police and indigenous people. The police mm-hmm. were there to uphold Canadian law and Canadian law at this time meant prosecuting black people who were trying to rescue a child from enslavement. <laughs> I know I'm laughing, but it's actually a, yeah. a sob. It's a sob. The police who had arrested the black rescuers were not the RCMP or the Dominion police. They were actually a local police force. But the thing is, all the police forces in Canada at this time and still to this day, are part of this thing called the carceral state. Okay, definition, please. So the carceral state is the system responsible for punishment. Carceral comes from the Latin word carcer, which means prison. Thank you very much, Linguistics 101, uh, first year university. (laughs) But it encompasses all the different arms of the criminal justice system. Actually, you know what? The intro to Law and Order explains it well. TK, can we have the gavel, please? 
In the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups, the police who investigate crime and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. Got it. We don't have district attorneys in Canada, though, you know, you could swap that out and replace it with a crown attorney. They represent the government. So the carceral state is both the law and the order, as well as any practices and structures that operate within that. And so the things that the system prioritizes gets attention and the things it does not deem as important, like, for instance, missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, does not get attention. That's right. Okay. So the inquiry into why so many Indigenous women have disappeared only began in 2015. Um, and this was decades and decades. I mean, honestly, like centuries. Indigenous women have been brutalized um, in, uh, you know, every way you Since could imagine. Contact. Since, Since contact. contact. Since contact. Yes. Since contact. What you're saying is that that's how long it took. Because the yes. system yes. was not set up in a way to value yes. to indigenous view, women to to right. see like it, right. it it's it is it's you know designed to actively disappear us with inside of it. That's right, and that has to do with the carceral state. It's all connected. So even though we have the creation of this big national force called the RCMP, there were some cities and provinces who decided to just do their own thing. Around the time of the RCMP's creation, cities like Toronto, Vancouver, Saskatoon, and Winnipeg would create their own city police forces, or they already had them and they just stayed with it. The Ontario Provincial Police also began at this time, while other provinces like Manitoba tried to have their own force, but by the 30s went with the RCMP. Yeah, that makes so much sense because it was always something I was kind of confused about. So because there's, you know, the RCMP, which is the big one that everyone kind of knows about. And then these other ones in, you know, in cities. So but I mean, honestly, for me. (laughs) <laughs> I'm like, police are police are police. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which... And I, I actually think that's the reason that I think it's really important to look into this history mm-hmm. and, and see that there, there are branches of it. It all kind of came from the same place, but a lot of us don't notice that difference, right? You see a cop car and that's a cop. You're not like, what division is this? Or, you know, whatever. <laughs> that's very true. Okay, so these forces are all part of the carceral state And so when you look at events relating to the police, both provincial police, city police, the RCMP, there is so much connective tissue. You know, a lot of early members of city and provincial police came from the Dominion Police or the Northwest Mounted Police. Yeah, they were cut from the same cloth, so to speak. That is why it is no mistake that Black and Indigenous folks are vastly overrepresented in the Canadian prison population. A stat from 2016 showed that Black Canadians, who were only 3% of the general population of Canada, were actually 10% of the federal prison population, while Indigenous people made up 26% of the prison population in Canada but we're only 4% of the population. What's your name? Orphan boy. Since the Blackfeet killed my family. Blackfeet murderers. Some have given me another name. Comes running. Comes running? Yes. When there's food in someone's lodge, they always say this one comes running. Only now there's little food for anyone. Come, eat in our lodge. Since the red coat has my eagle whistle, and I have his white medal, we are brothers. 
We are brothers. And what movie was that from? Okay, so this movie is from 1952. It's called McDonald of the Canadian Mounties. Mm-hmm. It's starring 40s heartthrob Tyrone Power as a Mountie. Oh, God, I yeah, love... love that guy, you know? <laughs> I know. I feel bad. I don't know who yeah, Tyrone Yeah, I didn't Power really is. know. And I, I will Google I don't later, get why I he's a heartthrob either. You know, some people's looks in the olden days really stand up. Like, you look at them mm-hmm. and you're, like, mm-hmm. still hot to this day. Like a Paul Newman. Paul Newman. But this guy, it's not transferring. <laughs> uh, he just looks like a normal guy. I don't understand why. Anyway, uh, anyway. His so- grandkids are going to send us angry letters. <laughs> like, he's a fine-looking person, but not. Okay. I'll Google He's later. no Brad Pitt. He's no Idris Elba. Okay, so he stars in this. And basically, it's about a Mountie who's trying to get the Cree people to sign Treaty 6 at this time. And inexplicably in this film, he adopts a Cree boy, even though the little boy is living with hundreds of his own people. Like every scene, Mm -hmm. he's surrounded Mm -hmm. by people. And this is another trope that you see in these Mountie movies and sometimes in these novels. You know, they're the ultimate provider and decider. A bit of a white savior, perhaps? Completely. This indigenous child meets a Mountie and immediately trusts him. But that was not the experience that many indigenous children were having at this time. No, it was not. You know, for instance... By the 1930s, the RCMP were formally declared as truant officers for Indian agents. But in reality, like they had been doing that job long before then, you know, years earlier. When they were asked to by Indian agents or schools, the RCMP searched out and returned, in quotes, indigenous children that had run away from school or never showed up. Right. And they also arrested, you know, older children. And when I say older, I mean children, you know, as old as 11. I've met elders who were put in jail at the age of 11 uh, to be held uh, after running away from residential school. And any parents who did not comply with, you know, giving their children over to the church or school, they were investigated and faced arrest as well. Here is an account from the book Shingwalk's Vision, a history of Native residential schools that the RCMP included in their report on the Mounties' actions during the residential school system. Indian agents, RCMP constables, and non-Native farmhands encircle a Manitoba Indian reserve. One of the Indian agents and an RCMP constable approach the house of an Indian family. They bang on the door and loudly demand the parents give up their children to them. The Indian agent instructs the RCMP constable to break down the door. They rush into the house, pry the frightened, screaming children from their parents' arms, and rush them to a holding area. The constable and agent go to the next house, and the next, and in the ensuing days, This scene is repeated many times on this reserve, and on most reserves in southern Manitoba. All children captured during the Fall Roundup are marched to the nearest CPR station, assigned a number, and unceremoniously herded into cattle cars for transport to the residential school at Winnipeg. And that was such a common occurrence in so many communities. And you read reports, like I've read reports of how, what those communities were like after all the children were taken and how like it was just devastated. Um, And you would hear women like just wailing for their children those nights. As the RCMP were refining their investigative techniques, they never extended them into looking into the numerous reports from parents and kids that abuse in the schools was rampant. So during this period of residential schools, the late 1800s to the early 1990s, you know, into the mid-1990s, Indigenous families were torn apart and ruined 
and parents were prosecuted for hiding their children. And while this is all happening, right, the popularity of the Mountie continued to grow. People all over the world would watch movies and read novels about the impartial, caring, and moral Mountie. You know, they wanted the uniform, pictures, hats, just like a lumberjack in maple syrup, right? The Mountie was one of Canada's most important exports. And as the calls from Hollywood kept coming, the RCMP would appoint officers as consultants to make sure the Mountie was used correctly. After all, they had an image to protect. More on that after this. I just wanted to take a break to tell you about another CBC podcast I think you might like. It's called Death in Cryptoland. It's a true story about a crypto tycoon, his secret past, his sudden demise, and an online sleuth's obsession to unravel the truth behind his mysterious company. You can check it out on the same thing that you're listening to this on or on CBC Listen. In America's toughest city, crime is on the loose. Let's go! We gotta solve this problem right now. And the only hope. Gentlemen, if you would be so kind as to step to one side, the detective will read you your Miranda rights. Is a lawman trained to serve. Thank you, kindly. And dressed to kill. Fraser. 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 Oh, dear. Constable Benton Fraser. Royal Canadian Mounted Police. We have a lot of fun, don't we, you and I? <laughs> More fun than a barrel of monkeys. Is a Canadian Mountie oh. on the streets of Chicago. That there is a clip from Due South. It premiered in the early 90s, and it turned into a really beloved show. It's about a Mountie named Benton Fraser who ends up working as an American police detective in Chicago where they solve crimes. Benton Fraser was played by Paul Gross, who, I can't lie, looks real good in the uniform. It's kind of messed up that Due South is on. In the 90s, while residential mm-hmm. schools still existed. So I'm sorry, I'm bringing it back down. The schools still existed. Think about all of the land defending mm-hmm. that was going mm-hmm. on. But yeah, this show was really, really popular. I just imagine there's like maybe, I don't know, maybe an actor who's listening to this. He's like just gotten a script come into <laughs> his email that's like, Constable, <laughs> like Terry uh, Smythe or whatever. Yeah. And it's like a role, like a, it's just awesome Mountie role. And now he's going to be like, oh, I don't know if I can do it. Anyway. So, but this sounds like a typical depiction of all Mounties that we hear about, right? Yeah. And you know what? I think the reason the show did so well is because, you know, he is the foil against this kind of hard talking American. It's the same trope of like the very moral and law-abiding Canadian versus, like, the out-of-control American. Um, And, you know, I watched the pilot episode, and the first criminal that Benton Fraser, the Mountie, chases is a 10-year-old black kid. Oh. Here's a clip. Okay. That's far enough, son. What are you, a flying boy scout or something? Constable Benton Fraser, Royal Canadian Mount of Police. Broken the law, son. That carries a heavy penalty. Perhaps you didn't think that through. Man, back off, okay? Just back off. Well, I'm afraid I can't do that. Now, if you'll hand me that purse. Say, back off! Stephen Baker? No. Yeah, you better keep that dog off me or else I'll pop him, too. No, you won't. You're gonna hand me that gun, you're gonna return that purse, and you're going to apologize to that lady. Why? I got the gun. Because you don't want to hurt anyone. 
And because if you don't, you might end up hurting yourself. Okay, well, that's just wonderful. That is just a delight. Thank you for sharing that, Leah. That's great. You're welcome. Interestingly enough, actually, I read that the RCMP wouldn't give Due South permission to use its image unless they got approval over that pilot episode, uh, which they did give in the end. Unfortunately, I couldn't find if Due South asked any black children for approval over the use of their image in the episode. So sadly, they did not yeah. do their due diligence mm-hmm, all mm-hmm. the way around. Yeah, okay. So um, this is all very yeah. on brand. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, as much as Hollywood and books told people what the image of the Mounties was, I think in the later years, these images now helped distract from the big events that were tied to the RCMP, you know, like Gustav Mm -hmm. and Lake that you mentioned earlier. You know, also the RCMP would end up investigating other police departments, like in the case of Starlight Tours. Yeah. Now, if you don't know what a Starlight Tour is, you might think it's something beautiful maybe having to do with the Northern Lights, but it is not. No, it is not. It is police picking up Indigenous people uh, in the middle of winter and driving them out to remote areas and dropping them off, uh, frequently taking their coats and their shoes and their phones and, you know, really leaving them with no way of getting home. Yeah, remember in the beginning when I said we were going to have a chat about the Saskatoon police? Well... Here we are. When Neil Stonechild, a 17-year-old from Soto First Nation, was found frozen to death, questions about his death began to swirl. In the initial investigation, the Saskatoon police determined that there was no foul play, but Neil's friend Roy stated that the last time he saw Neil, he was handcuffed in the back of a police cruiser. Eventually, the RCMP were brought in to investigate the Saskatoon police over Neil Stonechild's death. This was hard for a lot of First Nations and Métis folks, knowing that the RCMP would be investigating, because from the 60s on, there had been accounts all across the West about Starlight Tours being carried out by the city and provincial police, and that included the RCMP. Yeah, while many of the recent cases of Starlight Tours have been documented and are connected to the Saskatoon City Police, many in other provinces and cities have never been investigated, which is why I wanted to talk to Sonia. I'm Sonia Ballantyne, a Swampy Cree woman, writer, filmmaker, and nerd. I am originally from the Mississippistic First Nation in uh, northern Manitoba. I have ties to the Chimawan First Nation, which is very nearby, and I currently live in Winnipeg, Manitoba. She is a filmmaker and writer and self-described nerd. Uh, We got along really well. We ended (laughs) up talking about a lot of different things. We actually talked a lot about U2. Like, I'm a huge U2 fan, which was bizarre to be, like, a poor native girl who was a goth, loves this optimistic white boy band. (laughs) So... But yeah, like my activism came out of being a fan of you too. Um, when you grow up facing injustices and you don't know any better, you think that's just the norm. And so when I started reading about things in Burma and things in Africa and all the stuff that Bono was talking about, like injustices in the world, lack of clean water, people facing discrimination because of who they are, I was like, wait a second. And, you know, the reason I wanted to talk to her is that she's from Manitoba and her family has a history with Starlight Tours. Manitoba's provincial police is the RCMP. Sonia told me that a lot of the discrimination that she saw around her growing up was just how it was when it came to the police. And she learned very quickly what her options were if she needed help. I remember somebody asked me, like, if something happened, who would you call? And I was like, my father. And then maybe the cops. Like, if I found a body in the river, I would probably call the cops then. But like, if my sister were in trouble, I would call my dad. 
And then I call her boyfriend. And then we call the cops. And even though Sonia told me she has had some good relationships with specific RCMP officers, the knowledge of what happened to her grandpa Francis has colored her opinion of them. Now, just so you know, the man she calls her grandpa Francis is her great uncle, and she calls her grandfather Chapin. Okay, wait, so her grandpa Francis is her great uncle. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to let her explain. Okay. So my maternal great uncle, technically. But when you're native, everybody older than my parents is my grandpa, and everybody the same age as my parents is my aunt and uncle. And so... When I was working on a documentary called uh, Indictment uh, for CBC, I was working as a location scout talking to my auntie. Um, we were talking to my auntie and she said, do you know why your Chapan hated cops? And I'm like, no, auntie, like, um, I didn't know Chapan hated cops. And she said, because your grandpa Francis was killed by the cops. Sonia knew her grandpa Francis had died, but she never knew what happened to him. She said at this time, the community where her grandpa Francis was from didn't have an RCMP detachment. If anything happened, the police would drive in from Grand Rapids. It's a 45-minute drive, so that would take a couple hours to walk. But my auntie had told me that Francis was drunk, and he got picked up by the RCMP who drove him 45 minutes away to Grand Rapids to basically sober up. But nobody knew where he had gone. Nobody really had access to where he was or for that information or who actually called the cops. And so they took Francis the 45 minutes to Grand Rapids, uh, let him sober up for a bit, and then kicked him out and said, like, okay, you can go home now. But he was 45 minutes by car and about 80 kilometers from Easterville, roughly. And so Francis started walking, and it was the winter. I distinctly remember my auntie saying this. He was following the power lines back to Easterville when he died of the cold and the exposure. And they didn't find him again until the spring. Sonia said finding out how Francis died was difficult, because when you live up north, accidents happen to people out in nature all the time. Right. Hunting accidents, mm -hmm. uh, people getting lost, things like that. All the time. So she just thought it was something like that. And so I had assumed, not that it should be assumed, but I thought that was the situation. One of my father's friends when we were young, um, when he was young and I was young, he died because he got drunk and went for a boating ride and they found the boat, but not him. Or recently, a few years back, um, somebody I grew up with uh, started wandering during the winter and they found him frozen in the ice of the lake. It's really bizarre how much trauma people can, like, a community can really withstand like that. Finding this out about my grandfather Francis was very difficult for me because of um, how scary that is to imagine him. Because I've driven that 80 kilometers to uh, Easterville from my house all the time, and I know how cold it can get on that highway. And he didn't even use the highway. He took the... Um, the power line route, which is harder. And I don't know why he did that. Like, was it warmer that way? Was, did he think he was going to take a shortcut? Like, I don't know. Or maybe somebody else would have, like, beaten him up or something. Because it's always, like, this, like, multi-layered situation. Like, freezing to death in the woods is a preferable way of going than potentially being killed by the RCMP if they decide that they want to rough me up a bit more. Because of the nonprofit work she does, she has to create relationships with the police, but it's difficult. But it's kind of hard when stuff like this continues to happen, where 
there is this idea that, um, yeah, they want to change how they're perceived, but you can't change, like, 200 plus years of mistreating people like me for no reason other than maybe they were drunk or maybe they were in conflict with a white person. It's just very difficult. Yeah, it's a blood memory, basically. It's, uh, it reminds me of, um, that collective unconscious idea that every experience that everyone before you has had combines to create who you are right now. A study done by the University of Winnipeg found that Winnipeg City Police had left at least 76 Indigenous people on the side of the road or a highway on Starlight Tours. In Saskatoon, January of 2000, Lloyd Dustyhorn was in police custody for public intoxication, and the next day he was found frozen to death. A week later, the Saskatoon City Police left Daryl Knight five kilometers outside of Saskatoon. It was minus 22 Celsius, but Daryl survived and told his story. Weeks later, another Indigenous man named Rodney Nastis was found frozen to death in an industrial area just north of a power plant. And weeks after that, Lawrence Kim Wagner was found dead in a field on February 3rd. That year, the RCMP began an investigation into the Saskatoon police and the Starlight Tours. The RCMP determined that there was not sufficient evidence to lay charges against the Saskatoon police officers who had last seen Neil before his death. Due to public pressure, by 2003, the Minister of Justice of the province of Saskatchewan established a judicial commission to inquire into the death of Neil Stonechild. A year later, the inquest reported that the police investigation was not adequate or thorough enough. It found that Saskatoon police officers had left off any interaction with Neil from their logbooks, even though it was clear they had Neil in their custody the night before he died. It made recommendations for improved training and Indigenous relations. When the inquest was over, the two police officers that were last seen with 17-year-old Neil Stonechild were fired, but were never charged with his death. They executed my brother in broad daylight. The anger over Floyd's death first spilled onto the streets in Minneapolis. And then the demonstrations erupted in dozens of cities across the U.S., many wearing masks against COVID-19. They filled streets and public squares, packed bridges and parks. Global protests saw everything from a toppling of statues in the UK to a silent protest in Senegal at a site remembering victims of the Atlantic slave trade. Thousands in Rio de Janeiro rallied against police killings. And in Tokyo, demonstrators shouted, dismantle the police. In this country, protests and vigils have been staged in every province and territory. In Halifax, protesters called for unity and acknowledgement of a history of intolerance in Nova Scotia. In Montreal, demonstrators marched through the streets, calling for changes to police tactics and provincial government policies. Toronto has seen protests at sites ranging from City Hall to the provincial legislature to police headquarters. That was a clip from Being Black in Canada from CBC News. And as you can hear, the history of Canada's police is 
as long and as complicated as the history of Canada. You know, they both started at the same time. And I think I can really clearly see that these systems have never worked for Black and Indigenous people because it was designed in a way that did and continues to target them disproportionately. Yes. And it is so interesting that many Black people calling for change who are part of the, you know, the defund police movements, They call themselves abolitionists. I noticed that, too. When I heard the term abolitionist, I thought about all the people who worked to abolish slavery, Mm -hmm. you know, in history, Harriet Tubman, Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So to get a clear sense of the history connection, I thought I needed to speak to a present day abolitionist. Hi, my name is Cyrus Marcus Ware, and I'm an artist and an activist and a scholar And I've been an abolitionist for 25 years. Cyrus is one of the co-editors of the book Until We Are Free, Reflections on Black Lives Matter in Canada. And it's a compilation of essays from Black activists. I asked him why so many call themselves abolitionists. Yeah, abolition is such a beautiful concept. It's one that has been growing and, you know, our ancestors were abolitionists. They were trying to abolish slavery and many say that that is an incomplete project. It didn't actually get abolished. It was sort of uh, by default abolished and instead transferred to the prison system and the policing system. So, in fact, uh, you know, we're still working on a very long-term project that our ancestors began before us. So he sees that the history of black enslavement in Canada and the police and prison, the prison system, they're all connected. Like, that makes so much sense to me. Yeah, I think we can see that now. You know, it's all part of that carceral state we were talking about. You know, when we look at the history of policing in this place, we know that it is not a mistake that policing targets Black, Brown, and Indigenous communities. You know, it's not a mistake that it's Black and Indigenous people, trans people, disabled people who are filling the prisons. That that's actually the design of the system. That the system is designed to disappear Black and Indigenous people from their communities because that's the origin of the police system in Canada, was that it was actually set up to try to clear the land of Indigenous people to try to stop black people from freeing themselves from indentured and and enslaved labor camps. You know, it was actually set up to do that work. And so that's what it continues to do. Yeah, I think we've seen examples of that. I'm just wondering what he thinks the solution is, if there is a solution. Well, you know, talking to him, I felt really hopeful. He felt that the system can and must be reinvented. Reform is... um, you know, that was something that has been attempted. It does not work. What we need is we need a radical reimagining of our society. We need a radical reimagining of the ways that we take care of each other in community. And that's what I'm really excited to be working on right now. Uh, Right now, you know, the modern day abolitionists are the people who are imagining a new world, a world where we have what's called self-determination, which means that we get to define for ourselves how we want to be and live in this world. How do we create a world where Indigenous resurgence, the ability for Indigenous people to live self-determined lives, how do we make that happen? Well, the way that we do that, in part, is by getting rid of this police force that is only purpose is to drive around the streets and brutalize black and indigenous communities. It's not there to keep keep our communities safer or more secure. And if you ask anyone who's coming from communities that are targeted by the police, they'll tell you, you know, the police do not make our communities safer or more secure. Right. And it's so interesting that the defund movement and calls for reform are going on around the world. Look what's happening in Nigeria, in the UK. I mean, it's everywhere. Yeah. And it feels different. I do feel like 
like we are witnessing history. This is a revolution. You know, this is what this feels like. And of course, we're also seeing a lot of crackdown, a lot of police repression, police surveillance, you know, and that is happening because this is a successful movement. The movement to defund the police is going to be a successful movement. You know, people are talking about it all over the world. It is going to happen. We will have abolition in our lifetime. We will finally be able to have completed the work of our ancestors and finally abolish slavery for once and for all through the abolishment of the prison system and the police system. He told me that in a way he doesn't think that we have to create everything from scratch. You know, we've lived on this planet together in harmony before. We've taken care of each other in better ways before. We don't just have to invent new things. We can return to old ways, to indigenous ways of knowing, being, and relating to each other and to the land. And so I think that, you know, in this future that we're building, you know, some of it is going to look a little bit like the past, as well as being, you know, vastly innovative and creative in new directions. So I can't wait to get there, and I'm looking forward to meeting you all together in the free. The Secret Life of Canada is recorded in Toronto on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, Wendat, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit. It was written and hosted by me, Leah Simone Bowen. And me, Phelan Johnson. Our producer is TK Matunda. Our script editor is Yvette Nolan. Research assistance by Andrea Eidinger. Our digital producer is Fabiola Melendez-Carletti. And senior producer is Tina Verma. The executive producer of CBC Podcasts is Arif Nurani. We are on social media, but you can also reach out to us at secretlifeofcanada at cbc.ca. If you can, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Thanks for exploring Canada's hidden history with us. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.